It was Thursday night as well. Well, let's pray and we'll roll from there. Uh, Father, we pray with the psalmist, let the words of my mouth, our mouths, meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we do ask through the texts that we're in this morning, through the concepts we observe that we're drawn more fully into our relationship with Christ and the hope we have, as our song mentioned, the hope that is Christ for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we mentioned uh, Christmas Eve in the service. Uh, we live in unsettled, really troubling, uh, unique historical times. And what do we do to maintain our emotional stability sort of equilibrium in our outlook, not only on the present day, but going into the future as well. I did a six-part series in the summer of 2016, came out of Psalm 11, and the title of that series, which I would recommend to you, especially the second one called Political Hopes and Biblical Expectations, uh, was titled What the Righteous Do. In Psalm 11, it says the foundations of culture and life have shifted And when that happens, what can the righteous do? It's sort of a phrase that implies, well, maybe there's hopelessness or despair. And the psalmist is, in fact, invited to to make like a bird and fly away. But his response is something different. And four years ago, guys, there was a very contentious presidential election in full swing when we did this series. And also, if you remember four years ago, trans everything was the topic and the headlines and same-sex unions was becoming the norm legally and it really did seem like the the foundation the sands of our foundation had shifted and yet I confess this year I look back four years ago and maybe it wasn't a golden age (laughs) but compared to this year it didn't look all that bad didn't look as bad, perhaps, as it felt in the time. You know, today it seems that the world we've known is suddenly gone this year. Things are so different. And who could have foreseen that coming? Even, you know, when we got hints there's a new virus and it's coming across the pond, what does that look like for us? No one could have anticipated, I think, what we've seen. How do we steer through these times in a way that honors Christ? How many here went to driver's ed school? Do they still do that? Okay, most. Is it just the old people? How many people? Okay, okay. Do they still do that? So when I was in driver's ed, I think this is common. You know, they tell you 10 and 2, your hands on the steering wheel. But one of the other key concepts they said was you have to aim high. So you don't look at immediately the front of your hood in your car right where you're at. You aim high, you aim down the road to where you're going. If you do that, you'll not only see what's way down the road, you'll see everything between that and you. And spiritually, that's certainly what we want to do as well. I think one of the reasons that we will find ourselves displaced emotionally or spiritually in challenging times of any stripe is if we haven't aimed high enough, have our hopes set far enough down the road that those hopes inform us in the current challenges. And I think for many of us, that's been the challenge this year. Guys, I'm going to give an example. And I may be offensive to some of you in the example. You may disagree with my critique. And if you do, glad to chat. We can have coffee. I'm giving an example because it's contemporary and it's emotional. 
and it's driving Christians. So if you disagree, again, don't hold that against me. Pass the example. The example is just here to set us up to talk about some certainties that we need to entertain. So here's my example. There was a rally in Washington, D.C., December 12th, called the Jericho March. It was subtitled, Let the Church Roar. It was hashtagged, Stop the Steal. How many here watched it or have, have seen it online? Not very many. You know, I heard about it after the fact. It had already occurred. I saw it as a headline in some Christian news service. I had to go back and watch it. The rally was an attempt by American patriots and conservatives to respond to what they believe was a stolen presidential election. And guys, I'm not getting into the stole. It is stolen or it isn't. I don't know. And if you look at the statistics, the country's about evenly divided, just like the electorate. On it's a fair election, it's an unfair election. I'm not trying to answer that question. But that was that's sort of what was what got that group of folks in D.C. going. It was a gathering of people hoping to change the course of the future. The group was focused on future hopes. This is key primarily for the United States and primarily through the office of the president. This was a hopeful gathering with hopes expressed routine. By the way, on your study sheet, you have a link. You can go watch the same things I've watched and you can go read a couple of critiques that, that I have sympathies with. You can make up your own mind whether Mike's all wet on this or not. You can see the same things. But the hopes expressed were primarily national and presidential. Uh, the, the group assembled uh, wanted to see, and this is a common expression was, uh, the goal was to see Donald Trump ensconced as the president for the next four years. All of this is fine, right? This isn't, I'm not against Donald Trump for president. I, I'm not saying anything about that. But listen to what the event was like. The speakers included conservatives of all stripes, including Roman Catholics, evangelicals, and at least one Jew. The stage included, he was notable because he got a dispensation from his rabbi to come blow a shofar at this event, I kid you not. The stage included American flags as well as a large image of Pope John Paul II, either praying, bowing, or worshiping Mary. It was a large framed image on the stage with the American flag. While evangelicals were praying in Jesus' name and shouting, no king but Jesus, Roman Catholic nuns, priests, and bishops called on Mary, the mother of God, to intercede for us. Described Mary as the one who had ultimately crushed Satan and prayed to Michael the archangel all as one family of faith, which we are not. One pastor seemed to equate Donald Trump continuing as president with Jesus ruling America. It, it sounded messianic. An ex-military man, these are his words, called on those present to a desperate and bloody war if President Trump didn't enact the Insurrection Act and upend the election. And by the way, many of the speakers, they were threatening the country if they didn't get their way from this rally. It was, to my judgment, it was a confusing setting at best. My own opinion is that it was well-intended but an unholy attempt to invoke Jesus as Donald Trump's ultimate supporter. 
And this is my take. And I want to mention, as you know in this church, we're not opposed to political involvement. Nor are we opposed to share common cause with Roman Catholics and others when we lobby human legislators. This, though, it put religion and God as the handmaid of politics. It was, it was politics and faith backwards. People who don't believe in the same God and don't share the same gospel are praying together for political ends. This is not what God calls us to. So seeing that, I, say, I ask myself, how do we get this so wrong? Again, it's not about politics. It's not about Christians in politics. It's about Christians, evangelicals, and others who do not share the same gospel praying together as if we do. Old Testament or New Testament, this is not what God calls us to. How do we get that wrong? Emotional issue, right? My take is this. We get it wrong because we have the wrong hopes and the wrong expectations for the future. And or we get it wrong because the hopes and the expectations we have for the moment or the near future are not adequately informed by superior hopes that Scripture engenders on us. We're, we're displacing the hopes we're meant to have or meant to be informed by with subpar hopes that are inadequately informed biblically. This is the sixth and final message of the series, God's Do. And biblically, we owe God our hopes, our hopes for the future. And there's a lot of defining to do before we get into some key texts. So hold that lightly. Hope is a broad word. It's used in a number of different ways, and we'll refine this so we can make sense of all this. But our hopes for the future in any defining or ultimate sense must be set on nothing and no one other than Jesus Christ and God's sovereign plans to subject all things to him. In the short term, there's all kinds of things that we might hope for, have expectations on that may or may not occur. There are some things that are certain because God has promised them. And he calls those our hopes. Those are our ultimate hopes. And we want to make sure that any of the short-term goals and expectations and hopes we have on earth in our short time here are informed by those unalterable hopes that are absolutely going to occur. Nothing can stop them. And they should inform our life and our expectations. So take a moment before we get into this properly. Your study sheet has some places for you to write down your own thoughts, hopes, expectations. As you just think, 2021 or five years from now or 10 years from now, as I just say, I'm looking to the future and these are my hopes broadly. This is what I hope occurs. These are some of my expectations as I look down the road. What are those? What are just some of those? And th there's not a, a right or wrong answer on those. This is just observation. If I, if I think consciously, what am I hoping for? Near future and distant future. What are those hopes? What are those expectations that are informing me? Hope defined broadly is a feeling of expectation and desire for certain things to happen. So I'm, I'm looking to the future and I have things that I would like to occur. 
And I think about those with some sense of expectancy. And you'll see this, by the way, in, in the scriptures. The scriptures use hope in that very general sense. I look to the future and I hope some things occur. I don't know that they will. I'd like them to. But it also uses hope in a very specific and narrow sense, and that's what I want to focus on this morning. For our purposes this morning, hope is a certain expectation of God's plans and promises being fulfilled in the future. So biblically, in this narrow sense, you can't have a hope unless God has made a promise. In this sense, hope is not if, it's when, it's not maybe, it's a certainty. That's the biblical hope we're talking about this morning. The hope we speak of is that certain expectation that we can count on absolutely it's going to happen. It's only that it hasn't occurred in the moment. We've got to, there's all kinds of things that we can qualify this message by, all kinds of things that we can't nuance as might be helpful in the big picture. I'm not saying that we cannot or should not entertain hope for things we desire to occur in the future. So I might say I hope to get married, or I hope to stay married, or I hope to have children, or I hope I get a raise, or I hope I get a new job. There's all kinds of things. We live in a real world in which we've got to make plans. We've got to have some kind of expectations. We're not saying we can live without those. What we are saying is those things need to be held lightly enough that our world doesn't upend if they don't occur, and that those hopes are ultimately informed by biblical hopes, by the hopes God means us to have as believers because he has said certain things are going to happen, you can count on it. And we need to frame our hopes in the short term ultimately by those greater hopes God has spoken of and has in fact promised. We may have hopes for the future that will not occur, such that if we base our life on them, we'll miss the mark. I have a hope, and I really want to make it occur, and I think this was, this was the Jericho march. I really want to make something happen. I really have a strong desire, and I want to make it happen, and therefore I, I do things where I miss God's will. It's also possible to have personal desires, expectations, hopes for the future that displace the hope God means us to have. Now, guys, in a word, we call that idolatry. Because we replace God, God's word, God's will, or Christ with some sub-thing that we, we want it and it has effectively displaced Christ, displaced God, displaced God's word from preeminence in my life because I'm focused on something else. That's idolatry. We need to bring a hard-headed, biblically informed thought process to evaluate where we've set our hopes and expectations for the future Again, we want to ask ourselves, towards what is my life aiming? On whom or on what are my hopes set? Are our hopes for the future God's hopes for us? Are God's hopes for us our hopes or ours independent of His? Hope is a biblical value. I want to start in the Old Testament. God has always called on us to put our hope and trust in Him doesn't matter what time you look at, what covenant you're under, that's always been the case. God has always indicated we owe him our future hopes. There's some Old Testament references on your study sheet. I was tickled when I realized how often the word hope was used in the Old Testament book of Job. 
you know, if you think of Job's life and his story, you know, basically he loses about everything a man could lose. And so part of the use, English word hope translates four different Hebrew words in that text, but you do have hopes smashed. You do have hopes and expectations for the future that are just wiped out. You remember in the story, in a day, such that Job is just, he's reeling, wondering what has gone on. Maybe the same way we have felt in this last year. But in that, what could have been hopeless outlook for Job, in the midst of that, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That was Job's ultimate hope. So his desires, the life he'd known, it's upended in a day. All those, his expectations, his hopes, temporally, they're all gone. And he still says, you know what? If God slay, slayed me, he took my life like he's taken everything else, I would still die saying, I hope in him. My trusts are set on God. Psalm 31, 24 says this, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in Yahweh. Guys, if our hope is in God himself, we can take strength. We can be encouraged because God is a hope that never disappoints. It's an impossibility. Uh, I love Psalm 42 and 43. They repeat the same phrase. Uh, why are you in despair, O my soul? Anybody felt despair in the last year? I'm despaired. I've sort of given up hope. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed? Life's not gone the way I thought it would. I don't know what to make of it. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. He says, I don't know what to make of what's going on in the moment, but my hope remains in God. I'm going to praise Him for what He does. Psalm 71 verse 5 says this, You, uh, it's you, Adonai, are my hope. Yahweh, you are my confidence from my youth. God himself is my ultimate hope. So guys, which of us hasn't had something occur in our life where we just, we're like, Lord, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what to think. We don't know how to feel. But the psalmist says, my hope still is in God himself. If I can make sense of the moment or not. Or with Job, if I can figure it all out in the moment or not, God remains my hope. And the last example here, all of these, by the way, right, you could apply to the challenges we've faced in the last year, right? Or we could say in the last five years or whatever, since the cultural, at least, foundations have shifted. Listen to this from Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3 is a famous passage because of its hopeful expression. But you've got to remember, you've got to read the whole thing. You've got to remember what the setting is. So we assume that Lamentations was authored by Jeremiah, and what does Jeremiah live through? And what is Lamentations? What's the lens through which we're meant to see it? Judah has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. And Jeremiah, as it were, is sitting in the rubble heap that was the Temple Mount. And all the Jewish hopes, expectancies for blessing in the land, they're all gone. And almost all the Jews are now in Babylon, in captivity. But what does he say? He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Remember the bitterness. Remember all the disappointments. He says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. I am burdened. I am weighed down with all the loss, all my hopes dashed. I feel it. I taste it. I don't know what to do with it. 
Verse 21. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What gives Jeremiah in the rubble heap of Jerusalem hope? The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Amen. Kathy's clapping is my amen corner, just FYI. We talked about this the other day. I told my brother Rick we were missing him. The amens weren't as frequent as they normally were. Uh, uh, the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. God is a hope that cannot ultimately disappoint. Now, we might think God has committed himself to us on some particular thing and then find out we, we misread that God hadn't because it didn't happen. I've certainly had that occur. Lord, I thought something was going on. I thought you were in something. I was mistaken. That's not what I'm talking about. God can never ultimately disappoint because he can never break his promise and his word. He's always true to himself. You can absolutely count on it. Those who hope in God are secure. They can never be ultimately disappointed. He upholds those who hope in him. We owe God our hope for the future. That's an Old Testament lesson. I'm moving to the New Testament. And guys, I'm, I'm, uh, this is not as linear and as straight and neat a lesson as I would like. So stick with me and I'll try and keep it real as clear as I can. But I realize as I'm going through this, I may be trying to connect too many dots. But, but my point is this. There are some key hopes. We'll look at two hopes, biblical hopes, future certainties that every Christian is meant to hold and which are to inform every Christian's outlook on life in the immediate and aiming high down the road. And if we find ourselves overwhelmed in a moment, not that we can't feel displaced or not that we won't be discouraged at some point, but if in any uh, life-forming or shaping way we find ourselves disastrous in the moment, it may be because we're not looking at the hopes that are meant to inform our current circumstance. That's my, that's my big takeaway this morning. The term hope is used in the New Testament in the common way. If you just do a, a word search, you'll see it's used the, I hope for rain tomorrow, or I hope for this. But it's also used in the very narrow and specific way we've already said, God's promised something, it simply hasn't occurred in the moment. If we want to have hopes that cannot disappoint, that are guaranteed to happen, by which we can orient our life today, there's one certain thing we must do. Does anyone here know what it might be? We must read our Bible. We must, was that cheap and cheesy? It was, and, and there it is again. We must read our Bible. Guys, we've said multiple times, you cannot have biblical faith if you don't know what God said. You can presume, you can assume, but you cannot have biblical faith and you cannot have biblical hope in this sense if you don't know what God has committed himself to. Our biblical hopes are what God has promised. So listen to this from Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written, Paul says, in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
We look back over God's interactions with others before us and we say God is absolutely dependable. Whatever God has promised, you can count on. I read God's word and I gather hope to myself because I see how he's interacted and I come to grips with the promises he's made with his word, with his personal commitments. I'm going to look at two key hopes in the New Testament. These are hopes in the frame of reference we're using. These are promises that simply have not occurred. They are key, key, key in the New Testament. They are resurrection and they are rapture. And I'm going to treat these differently and you'll see why in a moment. Resurrection and rapture. Now, there's multiple references on your study sheet. You can look those up if that's helpful. Paul defends his proclamation of the gospel and of Jesus Christ as Lord because of God's commitment to the resurrection. So this is what Paul says. This is Acts 23, 6. And Paul was defending himself before a Roman tribune in Jerusalem. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, those Jewish religious leaders, they're also present. And he said in part this, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets. I'm looking back at what God has said. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, What's the hope? There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You know from the Gospels, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, but the Pharisees did. And Paul says, I believe the same thing these guys do. It's a certain hope. It's that we're all going to be raised from the dead, the just and the unjust. My hope, he says, is the resurrection. Romans 8, verses 22 through 25 talk about the same thing. He writes there, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Do you remember in the New Testament age? I believe I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I'm gifted by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, we've got the first fruits of a promise. He says, but in spite of that, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption. Now, if you're a believer, you've been adopted by God. You've not only been born again, but you've been legally adopted. You've made a, been made a son and an heir just like Jesus. Ado adoption was a big deal in, in a way that we don't, is not culturally normative for us. But if you were adopted, you had, it was the thought of privilege. It was whatever the person that adopted me is, I have everything they have. And that's the thought. But Paul says, well, there's this element of adoption that we haven't experienced. What is it? It's the redemption of our bodies. It's resurrection. He says, we haven't experienced it yet. In this hope, the hope of resurrection, we were saved. When I trust Jesus Christ to save me, I trust him for my future resurrection, Paul says. He says, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? A hope is always a future, future-looking event. If we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says, I know something's coming. And because of that, I have this patient waiting attitude thought in life. I know the resurrection's coming. It just hasn't happened. And my full, the fullness of my adoption will come in. Later in, in chapter 8, he talks about, I'm it's as if I'm already glorified, but I haven't got it on yet. He's looking forward to that, and that's informing his current experience. And you remember, Paul had a long, hard road. Read 2 Corinthians. This guy, there's few people in life that have the kind of suffering that the apostle Paul did. That was informing him. This hope of resurrection was informing him 
while he's just being hammered right and left throughout his life. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul's commenting on the implication that the dead aren't raised. The, the church in Corinth was just a muddled mix in all kinds of ways, and some of them were saying, well, we're saved now, but there's no resurrection. He said, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, You're, you've been ripped off if there's no resurrection. Because you've traded a life of pleasure. You remember in the context it says, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry if there's no resurrection, because this is all you've got. And you Christians, you were stupid if you left a life of pleasure, and there's no resurrection. He says, no, count on it. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about resurrection. Christians are called specifically to the certain hope of the resurrection. Whether we live long or short, whether life gives us our lesser expectations or not, the certainty of our resurrection and life forever with Christ in God's presence is meant to uphold us, encourage us, and guide us in our days now. So that if the bottom in my life falls out, and my hopes and expectations for this time or this life aren't going to be realized, I have a hope that transcends, an eternal hope that transcends my temporal hopes and desires. That's the thought. Now, tying resurrection to rapture, and rapture is a word that gets abused and used, and so I don't know what your take on that is, but I'm going to use it because it starts with R like resurrection, and it's easy to remember. Related to the certainty of our resurrection, there's this key thought that's tied to it, and it has to do with the concept that we call rapture. So Titus 2, verse 11, I've got a few here. I want to make sure that we develop this. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul writes to his protege Titus, and he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right now in my current setting. While, verse 13, while we're waiting for our blessed hope, our happy expectation for the future, which is, now he doesn't say resurrection here. He says, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, Paul says, our future hope is Christ's appearing. Now, in the text I'm going to read, three different Greek terms are used for this thought of Jesus appears, he shows himself, he unveils himself, he manifests himself. The thought is always the same. And it's not specific that it's resurrection, it's Jesus appears. And this... I'm, I'm uh, parsing this because we won't all be on the same page on how we think some of these things are occurring in the future. And so the singular point that we can all agree on, I think, is what we'll, we'll see at the end of this. So our hope, our blessed hope, is Jesus appearing. 1 Peter 1.13 says essentially the same thing. The Apostle Peter chimes in with Paul. He says it this way, Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, kind of like Paul's thought there, sets your hope, your expectation for the future, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the unveiling, apocalypsis, at the unveiling of Jesus. And then most fully, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18 
and I'll, I'll try and make sure we're all on the same page on this one. It's, it's the key text. Uh, you know, Paul's writing to a church which he had presented the gospel to, they believed, and the church was formed. And he hasn't been gone very long, but some of their number had died. And, and Paul had talked to them about the hope of the resurrection. And these guys are getting back to Paul, and they say, man, you know, we feel lousy for Aunt Frida or Uncle Sam, you know, or our brother or sister in the faith, relative or friend, because they died. They're going to miss out on the resurrection. And so Paul says, well, no, actually they won't. And that's what he's describing here. But you'll see that resurrection is tied to Jesus appearing. And that's what I want to get at. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And this is the term Paul uses for death for Christians in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Others who, unlike you, don't have a Savior and don't have a certainty knowing they're going to be raised to glory with Christ. They don't have it. And so they grieve when their loved one dies. And guys, this is the text I almost always use when we commit the body of a believer to the ground. It's 1 Thessalonians 4. Because a Christian dies in hope, certain hope of the resurrection. Verse 14, he says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. This is the image, and we'll read through the text. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. My Christian friend, brother, sister in the faith, they died. Their soul went to heaven. They're with Jesus. Well, there's going to come a future time when Jesus leaves heaven, but he doesn't leave alone. He brings the souls of the faithful departed with him from heaven. That's the appearance here. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is God's word, not my happy construct, Paul says. We who are alive and who are left until the coming, the parousia, another Greek term, the presence of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. So Jesus has left heaven. He's brought the souls of the faithful with him. When they get a resurrection body, and I have no idea what this looks like, guys. Their resurrection body somehow joins to them with Christ in the air before the living are caught up with Jesus, which happens just in a moment. I think all of this will be so quick in time sequence it'll I think appear simultaneous he says so the dead in Christ rise first then we who are alive who are left on the earth we will be caught up in the English we say caught up in the uh, Latin they said raptured that's where we get the term raptured from the Latin not the Greek we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord therefore encourage one another with these words so there you have resurrection, but you see it occurring in Jesus appearing. Jesus appears and this resurrection occurs. The hope Christians are meant to entertain, are meant to wait for, the hope that's meant to uphold us in our days of trials is that we will see Jesus face to face, will be with him forever, wherever and whenever he appears in the air for us. He appears we see him, we're with him from that point forward forever. That's our resurrection. 
The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the Christian hope. It's Jesus appearing and our, our being called to be with him forever. And guys, I believe, and by the way, my, my message, especially this morning, none of the elders knew what I was saying. They may say, Mike's all wet on some of this. But this is, if, if you've read your Bible, if you read commentators, if you listen to people online, there's no area of Scripture that's more disagreed upon than prophetic Scriptures. And there's a reason for that, because the consummation of things in the future is dependent on all kinds of promises God has made throughout the Old Testament and the New. So if you're going to disagree on something, it's probably going to be prophecy. So the rapture, there's, there was nothing ever written in the New Testament that said some particular key events have to happen before Jesus calls the saints to himself when he appears and calls us to himself. I've held, I'm 64, I've been a Christian for 44 years. I've held for 44 years that Jesus could call us in the rapture at any moment, at any day. I still believe it. Hadn't happened yet, but that's my belief. It's called imminence that Jesus could come in his appearing at any time. Now, this is where we may get conflicted. Regarding the timing, and I want to talk about the second coming. And I'm going to talk about two two different diverse views, expectations of what's called the second coming. So we've got the rapture, Jesus comes in the air, and those alive on the earth, they're caught up to meet him in the air. That much we've got. Now there's two primary schools of thought on what the relationship of the rapture is to something else called the second coming. So they're not the same thing. They're not identical, though they are related, and that's what I want to talk about. And the reason I want to cover this base is because I want to show that whether you're a pre-tribulationist, it doesn't matter if you know what these terms mean or not, or a classic premillennialist, your hope is meant to be the same thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you're wrong and I'm right or vice versa, the hope is the same thing. That's why I'm bringing this up with the second coming. I'm distinguishing what's commonly called the rapture from what's commonly called the second coming of Jesus. We've talked about the rapture, Jesus appearing. Those are the texts we just looked at. If you want to look at texts that speak to directly the second coming of Jesus, you need to look at Zechariah 14, Luke 21. These are on your study sheet. Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 1, and Revelation 19. They all deal specifically with the second coming. And in the rapture, we're talking about meeting Christ in the air. That's clear. In the second coming, it's clear that Jesus comes physically back to the earth, back to the Mount of Olives. That's Acts 1. So, what's the relationship of Jesus coming to the air with Jesus coming back to the earth, to the Mount of Olives? There's two primary ways to look at this. Some Christians believe that the hope, the rapture, and our joining Jesus in the air to be with him forever will occur before the great tribulation, before a seven-year period on earth, basically in which the guy named Antichrist is ruling and reigning, and, and it's, a, it's a very difficult time to be on the earth. In this understanding, in this pre-tribulation understanding of Jesus appearing, Jesus brings the saints from heaven with him. In the air, they get a resurrection body. The living on earth join him. And like a bride with a bridegroom, we go back to his father's house in heaven. 
and were with him there for seven years. And at the end of those seven years on earth, Jesus and his bride and the hosts of heaven, they come together and they come, they descend through the air to the Mount of Olives in the second coming. And the second coming is Jesus defeating the armies of the earth. Uh, Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. And Jesus establishes his thousand-year reign on the earth at the second coming. So that's what some, some believers think, that there's a seven-year delay between the rapture and the second coming. Okay, that's one view. Other Christians believe that the hope of being united with Christ as he comes in the air is part of the second coming. Now in this, the rapture and the second coming are simultaneous. In this view, those Jesus in heaven and the faithful saints with him, they come from heaven, they're coming down to earth. As they're still in the air, the rapture occurs. So the folks from heaven, they get their body. The folks alive on earth, they join Jesus in the air. And then they immediately, so they go up, and then they immediately come right back down with Jesus in the second coming to the Mount of Olives. It's simultaneously, it's one event with two different phases, if you could even say it that way. So that's another way. And by the way, I do not agree with this version, but there's a lovely view or version of that when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday. This is the only reason I really like this view because I think it's beautifully illustrated in Palm Sunday. In Palm Sunday, Jesus, the king, comes with his entourage from the Mount of Olives and he comes down to go into Jerusalem. What happens when he gets near Jerusalem? The folks in Jerusalem, they come out to meet him. They throw their palm branches and their clothing down. And you remember, then they go right back with him, right back into Jerusalem. It's a lovely picture. I just don't think it depicts what we're talking about. In either of these scenarios, the hope engendered in the text we looked at isn't specifically Jesus' second coming, though we want that for him. That's his glory. It's our joining him. The Christian hope is to be with Christ. That's the Christian hope. This hope of hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, being joined with him forever is meant to be the ultimate hope that informs every lesser hope. And that doesn't matter if we're with Jesus in heaven for seven years or if we're with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, we're with Jesus. The thought is it's like the bride and the bridegroom. We just want to get married. We just want to live our lives together. That's the same thought. That's the kind of expectation we're talking about. And let me ask you this. Let's just pause again for a second. When I think of my future, when I think of the future, so next week, next year, whatever, does Christ's appearing and my joining with Christ forever, is that in there anywhere? Because it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And especially if we have a really comfortable life here, generally everyone suffers, but if life here is pretty good and I'm pretty comfortable, guys, it's easy to forget that we're meant to live with a hope greater than my current experience or greater than my lifetime. Is the Christian hope, is the happy, blessed hope, is that anywhere in our expectations for the future? Does it inform any of the way I'm living life today? Or is it just gone? I'm just looking at what's right in front of me. There is no blessed hope. I think for many of us, and I think in fairness, in part, we've been waiting almost two millennia for this, right? 
And so most of us are used to, just like generations before, you know, we live life, we do our best. If I live long, I, hopefully it'll be a good, successful life, and I'll die, and I'll go to be with Jesus, and sometime, time I don't know when, there's going to be a resurrection, there's going to be a rapture, but, but I really don't hang my hat on that because so many generations have come and gone and the rapture hasn't occurred and the second coming hasn't occurred. And so I get myself sort of in a mindset where I'm trying to be faithful in the moment. Faithful in the moment is great, but we don't want to be faithful in the moment forgetting the hope that's meant to inform each and every moment. The church has been called to wait for Jesus for about 2,000 years. If you believe in imminence, you believe Jesus could call us in the air to himself at any moment, that there's nothing that has to occur. But if we're talking about the second coming, and again, this is why I bring this up, if you're talking about the second coming, there are big pieces of a puzzle that have to be in place for the second coming to occur. They have to be in place. It's a given in all the scriptures. Israel has to be in the land of promise for the second coming to occur. Guys, it doesn't matter if you read Old New Testament, Gospels, Epistles. The Jewish nation is in the land of promise at the second coming. Without argument. Now think of this, and we forget this. Guys, for uh, about 1900 years, there was no Jewish nation. Didn't exist. Jerusalem's destroyed in 70 AD. There's a revolt called the Bar Kokhba Revolt in 135 AD. It was illegal for Jews to be in the vicinity of Jerusalem. It's renamed. The Romans rebuilt it. There was no Jewish nation. May 14, 1948, there's a Jewish nation. Guys, it didn't exist before. There had to be a Jewish nation for the second coming because Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives. Armies of the world are surrounding Jerusalem. He talks about Sabbath flights and moms and children don't go back into the city. It's all Jewish. It's all Israel. Had to happen. Couldn't have happened before 48. There was no Jewish nation. They weren't there. They were there in some, but not as a nation. The last great kingdom mentioned in the Old Testament prophetic scriptures before Jesus' kingdom is established is the Roman Empire. This is going back a long way, isn't it? Daniel, Daniel is the key Old Testament text on a timetable for anything in the future. And if you read Daniel 9, there's... And I'm sorry, I won't go into this. Can you tell I'm interested in this stuff? I, I've, read, I've read this for decades. I've read a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, but Daniel was given a timetable from the angel by divine inspiration. And the last kingdom on earth was the Roman Empire. And Daniel is quite clear that the last kingdom on earth would de be demolished by the stone that would come from heaven cut without human hands, it would land on that kingdom and it would demolish it as it set up its own kingdom. Now, we don't have a Roman Empire today, but we do have what's called the EU, the European Empire. That's only 27 years old, and it is essentially, geographically, it's the, the old Roman Empire. And last, Scripture foretells, this is Daniel... This is Revelation, this is 2 Thessalonians, this is Matthew 24. Scripture says that in the end times, there's going to be a man who rules the world. And Daniel calls him a little horn, a boasting great things. And 
2 Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. 1 John calls him the antichrist. But the world is going to be ruled by a guy that has control over the population of the world. That sounds impossible, doesn't it? One of the key things it says about this ruler that Jesus will personally deal with at the second coming is that he will prevent you or enable you to buy or sell. Now think of that for a moment. In what, in what economy, in, in what venue could one person control your ability to buy and sell? And think of the setting we're in now. Some people call this, and I, I won't get into it, there's a bunch of stuff uh, going on in which various folks are hoping to reset the economies of the world right now through COVID-19. This isn't make-believe. You can listen to the people saying these at the Davos conference last this, this year, February of this year. So there are some people that definitely want to see this as an opportune time. They want to reset the economies of the world. And guys, the economies of the world, they're tied together in ways they've never been before. Have you seen what a nightmare it's been for the UK to try and get out of the EU? They've been working on this for years. They just struck a deal. It's almost impossible for countries to take themselves apart in any meaningful way. And we are also moving away from what we call hard currency to digital transactions. And in the future, if you can control digital transactions, you can control what people buy and sell. Now, the reason I raise all this up is to say that if the stage appears set for the second coming, at least the big pieces of the puzzle for the second coming, then it means the appearing of Jesus and the Christian's blessed hope is sooner. Either by moments or by seven years, depending on your outlook. But you see what I'm getting at. If the pieces of the puzzle look like they're there on the board in the way the second coming describes, then we know for certain Jesus' appearance is close because however you parse it, moments or seven years, the appearing occurs before the second coming or as part of it, but before Jesus comes to the earth. So all of this is just to say our hope is closer today than where it was yesterday, obviously, but 50 years ago, 100 years ago, pieces are in play that had to be for the second coming to occur. No matter our eschatology, if the second coming appears near, the rapture, our being caught up to be with Christ, is even nearer. And as we witness the end of so much of what we've appreciated and the rise of so much of what we would prevent if we could, we can lament and despair. Or we can rejoice that our hope looms nearer than it has before. Amen. In Luke 21, 28, in the context of the great suffering on the earth, right before the second coming, Jesus says, raise your heads... Your redemption draws near. Life is really hard, great suffering. And Jesus' response is to tell them in the moment, lift up your head because redemption is almost there. We can look back and despair or we can look up and rejoice. But you see, it's your hope. It's your hope. It's your expectation that defines 
how you experience and how you respond in the moment. What is my hope looking forward for the future? We should be encouraging ourselves. And I say this to myself, guys, I feel like a, a laggard. I feel slow on this, that I don't talk about it enough. And the truth is, on one hand, I've studied this, I've studied prophetic scripture probably more than any other uh, theology of the Bible. I've studied it literally since I was a new Christian. I've got more commentaries on Revelation and Daniel than you'd be interested in looking at. But you know what? It's a divisive topic because Christians don't agree on the eschatology. And I don't want to divide, so I found myself speaking of the blessed hope less often than I should. We should be thinking about this. We should be encouraging each other with this. It's meant to be there day by day and moment by moment for all of us. Whether we see it in our lifetime or if we die and our children see it, we're supposed to be encouraging each other with that happy expectation, that blessed hope that Jesus will appear and we'll be with him forever. Now, meanwhile, and I don't want to write this off at all, you read the book of Proverbs, and you know what it's telling you? It's telling you how to live a happy, successful life right here, right now. So we're living right here and right now, right? We have hopes and expectations for our lives on there. You can't live apart from that. It's just that we want those current hopes and expectations to be informed by the ultimate hope. That ultimate hope can't disappoint Hopes for the current phase of life, those can be disappointing. But Jesus appearing cannot disappoint. It's going to happen. None of these momentary things should displace the primary hope God's given, which is himself in Christ. And nothing, and I've laughed at this because I've heard people say, I want Jesus to return, but not yet. Right? You laugh because you've said it or thought it, right? Or you've had the same conversations. I want Jesus to return after I get to do whatever it is. After I've experienced this vacation, that marriage, these kids, whatever, right? Whatever it is. Nothing should keep us from saying with the Apostle John and the saints of the ages. And this is how the Bible winds down, guys. Revelation 22. Yes, come Lord Jesus. Yes, come Lord Jesus. Come today. Christ is our hope, and hope is our due. Guys, to wind down the whole series, we owe God, and it's certainly to our, our blessing, our, our benefit, to give God His due in attention. We're in the Scripture. We're being informed by what God has said. In reverence and fear towards God, the ultimate object of fear and reverence. In our thanksgiving, a message we, we uh, did not get to just because of the, the challenge and everybody being able to get to church in giving God our trust, our worship, and finally, giving God our hope. Well, let's stand. I want to read Titus 2, 11 through 14 together as we close, and the worship team can come up. Stretch, big yawn, whatever it takes. Let's read this together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession 
who are zealous for good works.'" 